I've noticed over the years how much uh, Methodist people like to sing that old gospel hymn in the garden. I, I, I hope that when you sing that, your mind doesn't just go back to the garden there behind your house somewhere or a garden that you knew growing up. I hope that in fairness to the author of that hymn, your mind will go back to that garden outside of Jerusalem, that garden where Mary Magdalene met the living Jesus that morning, that first morning, uh, that first Easter morning. That's the garden that the hymn writer is talking about there. That's the fellowship that the hymn writer is talking about. And the hymn writer is helping us all to understand that because he is the living one, we can have that fellowship with him today. We are continuing in our sermon series on the biblical basis of the Apostles' Creed, those basic Christian convictions. And today we're looking at that part of the creed where we profess that on the third day he rose from the dead. Our text for this morning is found in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Beginning at verse 3 of chapter 15, hear these words from Paul. He says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more, to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. This is the word of God. Friends, would you pray with me? Great God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks. For gathering us together into this place, we are so grateful. We thank you that you have called us to this time. You've called us to this place through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the ways that you continue to speak and fellowship with each one of us. Lord, I pray that each one of us this morning will allow earthly distractions to cease for a few moments so that we might be very sensitive to the presence of the living Christ here among us. Give us ears to hear what he is saying to us. In the strong and powerful name of the living one, we pray. Amen. Perhaps one of the most thought-provoking books that I've read in the last decade is a book that's still on the bestseller list, and the title of that book is The Coddling of the American Mind. And I was first captivated by that title, The Coddling of the American Mind. The subtitle of that book is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. 
It's a popular book, still on the bestseller list today. It was written by two social psychologists. And I'm not even sure if they're people of faith, but a lot of what they say in their book tells us a lot about contemporary culture, something that we, particularly as Christians, need to hear. In that book, those two social psychologists are talking about some major changes that have occurred in our society just since the years 2013, 2014. And they give a lot of reasons as to why some of these changes have occurred just in recent years. And they give a lot of illustrations as to how some of people's thought lives have changed. And the book is about some major ideas that are, as the subtitle says, that are good intentions, but they're bad ideas, and they're setting up a generation for failure. One of those ideas that those two social psychologists speak of and illustrate throughout their book is an idea that I'm hearing more and more about in society. It is a new concept called safetyism. Just take the word safety and put ism at the end of it. Safetyism is something that has developed uh, really since about the year 2013, 2014, 2015. And these two social psychologists give a lot of examples, particularly from the world of higher education, as to how these concepts of safetyism are coming to bear on our society today. Let me, let me tell you what the concept of safetyism is about. We all know what safe means. We all know what it means, I hope, to be safe. We all know that we have the right to be safe from other people harming us physically. But in the last few years, there's become a thought that is prevailing in some circles that you not only harm me if you physically attack me, but you may harm me by your ideas, by your speech, by the thoughts that you share, by the convictions that you hold. So safetyism believes that what we're all after here in this society is to never be harmed, and they extend that to mean never be harmed by ideas that we don't like, opinions that we don't agree with, or attitudes that bother us. And people are busy trying to create these worlds and these spaces that are safe from even ideas they don't like. You can imagine how deadly this is, particularly in an academic setting. That's safetyism. And we are raising a generation to believe that the world is meant to be safer than the world is ever meant to be. I know when I was raising my children, one of them's here in the sanctuary, I hope she remembers me saying this. I remember when I was raising my children, I, I frequently would say to them, world's not fair. Life's not meant to be fair. God's more concerned about your holiness than God is concerned about your happiness. And that's the Christian way of viewing life. This is not a, a safe world most of the time. It's certainly not a fair world. It's not an equitable world, and it's not even a safe world at times. And we need to train those coming behind us and train ourselves to be able to use the resources 
that God has given us to be able to live in this world that's not really that safe. We should learn how to walk through this world in such a way that when we encounter the trials, when we encounter the turmoil of this world, that we can reach deep down within us and find those resources so that we can overcome whatever this world seeks to bring to us. In a lot of ways, this is not a safe world. We know that. We know that. And anything else beyond that reality is illusion. But there are some people who need to be disillusioned. And they need to lose the illusions as to how, think, how they think this world should be safe. The Christian faith, I'm sure you've recognized, is very realistic. The Christian faith is very honest about the struggles of this world. That's why at the center of the Christian faith is a crucified God. That's why when we use something like the Apostles' Creed, in just the, a matter of a few words, we can move from the lowest point in Jesus' life to the highest point in Jesus' life. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried, the third day he rose from the dead. In just a few words, we move from the lowest point of his life to the highest point of his life. As Christians, as Christians who are seeking to live Christ-centered lives, one of the things that we know that we profess, particularly every time we use the Apostles' Creed, is that it is the work of Christ during that last week of his life that makes all the difference in life and death. Now, the teaching of Jesus is important. The healing ministry of Jesus is significant. But you'll notice when you turn to the Gospels, an inordinate amount of interest surrounding that very last week of Jesus. His suffering, his death, his burial, and what was to come. When you look at the Gospels, you, you really can't miss that. When you look, for instance, at the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice that a fourth of the Gospel of Luke is all about that last week of Jesus' life. When you look at Matthew and Mark, you'll, you'll notice that a third of those Gospels are all about the last week of Jesus' life. When you get to John's Gospel, and John's the Gospel that presents the picture that Jesus had at least three years of ministry, but in John's gospel's presentation, half of the gospel is about the last week of Jesus' life. It's that last week of Jesus' life that makes all the difference in life and death. And again, you know this from the Apostles' Creed. You, you should be shocked every time you profess faith using the Apostles' Creed, when you say something like, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then there's a straight jump to suffering under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried the third day he rose from the dead. You notice what it skips over? It skips over the whole life of Jesus, other than that last week when he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Christianity is a faith that is rooted in this world. It's a faith that's rooted in history. It's a faith that's rooted in the difficulties of life. 
So in the Christian faith, we can't live with illusions as to life being safer than it was ever meant to be. One of my heroes in the Christian faith is John R.W. Stott. He was a great preacher. He just died a few, few years ago. He uh, preached his whole ministry in uh, downtown London, near downtown London. He was a prolific author, prolific preacher, and had a huge impact during his life. I remember hearing him say several times, and you'll find it in his writings, where he speaks about, in his travels around the world, going into Buddhist temples. He doesn't mean any disrespect to Buddhists, but he says that when you go into Buddhist temples and you see a statue of the, the plump Buddha, he's there, he's seated, he's plump, he's smiling, he looks rather happy. And if you know about Buddhism, you'll know that a big part of the Buddhist faith is to, to learn how to become detached from this world, to become detached from the suffering of this world. And, and that's what you see when you look at the statue of Buddha. You see uh, a serene contemplation, a detachment from the reality of this life. John R. W. Stott says that every time he's walked into a Buddhist temple and he's looked at a statue of Buddha, he'll look at it and, and, and contemplate it for a little while, but then he has to both physically and spiritually turn from that statue of Buddha and look again at the crucified one that is there at the center of our faith. Our faith is not a faith that teaches us, that even wants to teach us how to be detached from life in this world. Our faith is a faith that wants us to be become people who can overcome the trials and the suffering of this world. So this, this Christian faith is very honest about life. And sometimes spiritual growth begins when, when we get disillusioned, when we take away the illusions that we have about life. And realize that life can be tough, but that's okay. Life can be filled with trials, but that's okay. The world and the people around us do not meet our expectations. And that's the way it was meant to be. So there's Jesus living that last week of his life, going through the suffering of the last week of his life. And because he did that, he has transformed it for us. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, it is obvious that Paul is talking about something of first importance. He says, verse 3, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. So Paul very quickly is saying something to the church that hopefully we know. And we've talked about it during this series on the Apostles' Creed. We are just to pass on what we've received. We're not to make it up as we go. We're not to add new novel things to the faith as we go. He says, I handed on to you as, I first, as of first importance what I in turn had received. A couple weeks ago, I participated in ordination service at Lake Junaluska for United Methodists. And one of the traditional things that United Methodist bishops tell those who are being ordained is the charge to go forth and preach the faith of the church and none other. Paul says, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, what he had received from the apostles. 
And then he tells you what it was he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. The third day, he was crucified on the first day, Friday. He was in the realm of the dead on the second day, Saturday. Third day, Sunday, first day of the week, what we now call the Lord's Day. He was raised from the dead. So he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. I wish Paul would have told us a little more about which, which scriptures he's referencing. Because any time, of course, any of the authors of the New Testament talks about the Bible or scriptures, they're talking about the only Bible or scriptures they had. That's what we would call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. I suspect he's referencing things from the Bible, such as, um, such as Psalm 16, that we used a few moments ago. There are several psalms that seem to prophesy both the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a passage in the prophecy of Hosea that seems to prophesy the resurrection of Jesus. There are several places in the prophecies of, I, of Isaiah that seems to prophesy the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul is convinced that both the death and the resurrection of Jesus were prophesied in, in the Bible, what, what we call Old Testament. And the, the early Christian community would use their Bible, the Old Testament, to preach Jesus buried and resurrected. So after he declares that, then, then Paul starts talking about the appearances of Jesus. That he appeared to Cephas. And you know who Cephas is. That's the Aramaic name for, for Peter. That's the Aramaic name Rocky or Peter Petros in the Greek. So he, he appeared first to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. Actually, it would be the eleven because Judas is gone at this point. But the title, the twelve, just refers to that official group that gathered around Jesus. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Don't we wish Paul would have said more about that? He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And then Paul actually offers us a dare. He says, most of whom are still alive. He's saying, go talk to them. Go find them. There are over 500 of them, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. He says, go and talk to them. They will tell you that during that 40 days... Between resurrection and ascension, Jesus appeared and fellowshiped and spoke and taught with his followers. Again, it was not the empty tomb that transformed the early church. Not the discovery of an empty tomb, but the discovery of a living Jesus that transformed the early church. He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, so go ask them, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, or I guess I should say half-brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles, that's the rest of the early Christian community. And then Paul adds rather personally in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Well, of course, Paul was not there with those early Christians during those 40 days when the resurrected Jesus taught his earliest followers after his resurrection. Paul, though, probably two years after that, one or two years after that, was en route to the city of Damascus to arrest some of these 
early Christ-following Jews. And while en route to Damascus, there on the road to Damascus, you know the story that Paul encountered the living Jesus. And Jesus revealed himself to Paul at that point. That's what Paul's talking about here. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all. As to one untimely born, one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. At the center of our faith is this last week of Jesus' life. Everything in life and death hinges on what you do with the events of the last week of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he, as he continues through chapter 15, will continue to talk about how the resurrection of Jesus allows for our resurrection one day. And he even says at one point, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching, our proclamation has been in vain and our faith is in vain. Paul says if this resurrection did not happen, we just need to pack up and go home and call it quits. But Paul, along with those others that experienced the living Jesus, knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead on that third day. You know, Paul would have none of the nonsense that some moderns have come up with concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Some has been beyond bizarre, and some people will believe the beyond bizarre before they'll believe what the apostles teach. Some of you may remember the book that came out in 1965 called The Passover Plot. Hugh Schoenfield. The Passover Plot was hugely popular. That book is still in print. And in that book, that scholar, and I put that word in quotation marks, that scholar paints a picture that Jesus did not die on the cross as was perceived. He just, he swooned. He passed out. He fainted. And those poor, ignorant Romans didn't know the difference between life and death. And they, they took him down from the cross thinking he, he was dead, but they put him in the tomb, and the coldness of the tomb awakened Jesus. And all of these early followers just were so deluded, they didn't know the difference between a Jesus that had swooned on the cross and never died and a Jesus who came back from the dead. Our ancestors, our ancestors know what death looks like. Our ancestors knew what life looks like, perhaps better than we do. That's a foolish concept. The book's still in print. You still can, you still can order it. There's a movie made out of it. You can watch the movie, The Passover Plot. But most of the time in the life of the church, it's nothing, it's nothing that bizarre that people try to promote in the life of the church. Usually in the life of the church, you, you, you will see, again, scholars, I put it in quotation marks, you'll see scholars who will say things like this. If you boil it down, what they're saying, they will say things like this, that the resurrection of Jesus was just a spiritual matter. The resurrection of Jesus is just a metaphor for how Jesus so impacted those early Christians that his memory just lived on in a dramatic, transformative, life-changing way. Again, Paul would have none of that nonsense. The early 
Church fathers and mothers would have none of that nonsense. They based our faith on the fact that a dead man got up and walked one day there in a garden, out of a garden tomb outside of Jerusalem. And more than 500 people experienced him. In some ways, he was just like he was when he died. He still bore the marks of his crucifixion. But in other ways, he was gloriously transformed. You know the stories in the New Testament. He could show up in rooms where the doors were locked, and he didn't have to pass through those locked doors. There were some things remarkably the same, some things remarkably different about this resurrected Christ. That's what we will have one day in regards to a resurrection body. You need to understand when you look at the early Christian community, this, this experience, capital T, capital H, capital I, capital S, this experience preceded the formation of the church. It led to the formation of the church. And then the Christian community wrote scriptures about this experience. But it was this experience with the living Jesus that changed everything. He wasn't just resuscitated. There are there's like eight different resuscitations in the Bible where people just come back from the dead. They come back just to die again sometime like Lazarus. But this was a resurrection, a resurrection to new life. We'll talk more about that next week. I want to end with a shout out to one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Luke Timothy Johnson. Luke Timothy Johnson taught for years at Candler School of Theology and Emory University. And he wrote a book entitled The Creed, subtitled What Christianity Believes and why it matters and in that book the creed he talks of course about this part of the creed that we believe on the third day Jesus rose from the dead this is what Luke Timothy Johnson a brilliant scholar wrote about the resurrection he said if Jesus is not raised Christianity is simply another cult or ethical society and not a particularly attractive one Those contemporary forms of Christianity, he says, that focus only on the humanity of Jesus, only on the human Jesus, only on the Jesus' ministry there in Judea and Galilee, those contemporary forms, present-day forms of Christianity that focus only on what Jesus did as a human, believe in vain. That's what Luke Timothy Johnson says. If Jesus is, is... only the historical Jesus, then Christianity is a delusion and a waste of time. But if Jesus is raised as Lord, everything changes radically. We profess on the third day he was raised as Lord. Therefore, everything has changed radically. I hope that you're participating in the radical change. Here in this world, we are so surrounded by death in so many ways. That's part of the nature of fallen creation. That's part of the nature of this creation that Jesus Christ is in the work of redeeming. Jesus Christ is in the work of transforming. We're surrounded by by death in so many ways. I know that most of us are still 
still grieving that terrible collapse of the condominium in Surfside, Florida. So tragic, so tragic in so many ways. So many people died a horrible death in the collapse of the condominium there in Surfside, Florida. And I, I, I'm mindful every time we come to worship as we're making our way out of the COVID season. And by the way, thank you for all that you're doing to help us make our way out of the COVID season. We're all in a process of relaunching. We're all in the process of rebuilding the church of Jesus Christ as a result of COVID. But I'm mindful every time we gather as we are coming out of the COVID season of those those who are not among us anymore, those that died as a result of the COVID pandemic that are not now with us here in worship on this side of eternity, they're on the other side, worshiping on a brighter shore. But I, I think about them when we gather for worship, and I miss them when we gather for worship. In so many ways, we're surrounded by death. That's why it is good news that we can joyfully, enthusiastically, extravagantly, audaciously look death straight into the face and say, we believe that he rose. And everything now is different. Would you pray with me as I invite the Holy Spirit to finish this message in our hearts this morning? God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. It is such a gift. We pray that your Holy Spirit indeed will finish this message in our hearts. We thank you, God, that you have claimed us as your very own. Help us to live as faithful, committed disciples of Jesus Christ. May everyone in our lives see the difference that he makes to us. We give you thanks, God, that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in our lives. In the powerful name of the living one, we pray. Amen.